Shalom. I'm Rabbi Alan Haber, and this is the fourth installment of the Am Levadad Yishkon podcast. In previous episodes, we discussed the, I guess you could call it, meta-historical reality that can be encapsulated by the words Am Levadad Yishkon. The idea and the, and the fact that Am Yisrael is this entity that seems to defy all logic. It even defies definition. We pointed out that you can't really describe exactly what Am Yisrael is. And it seems that no matter what experiences we go through or what anybody has tried to do to us over the course of history, we've always managed to survive and to continue to exist, spread out as we are across the entire earth, living in every country without any particular elements that automatically bind us together. We didn't. We don't always speak the same language. We didn't have a land of our own for many periods in uh, in history, for most of history, even over the last few thousand years. And we didn't even believe in the same God necessarily always. And somehow there's something that always seems to hold us together and causes us to continue to uh, survive and to thrive. And we have seen over the last two weeks that this caused a lot of fear and suspicion and hatred against Jews the phenomenon that we call anti-Semitism, or what Chazal referred to as Esav Soneli Yaakov. Um, we saw two weeks ago that this phenomenon began already in the times of the Torah, the very almost from the very first moment that something called Am Yisrael existed in Mitzrayim. We have Paro in the book of Shemot saying, Hein Am B'nei Yisrael Rav V'atzum Imenu Havanit Chakmalo. Centuries later, we have Haman convincing Achashverosh to try to wipe out the entire nation. Um, simply by telling him that And last week we talked about the fact that in 18th and 19th century Europe, as Europe was moving from the Middle Ages into the modern period, and as new ideas were uh, were coming into uh, to vogue, ideas like humanism and rationalism and nationalism, and, and ultimately democracy. And these are things that ultimately led to what was called the emancipation of the Jew, the changing of the historic reality, whereby Jews were treated as equal citizens as everyone else. This didn't happen smoothly, and there was a lot of debate at the time. And the term, the Jewish question, we spoke about uh, last week. And we also spoke about how Jews themselves were very confused about this, and were very concerned about the the continued persistence of anti-Semitism and wanted to move beyond the burden that history had placed upon them for so many centuries. And we talked about Jewish attempts to grapple with the Jewish question, both those among our great Gedolim and and also Jews who didn't any longer uh, follow the Torah or didn't follow it uh, in the way in which it had always been understood. Um, We talked about those Jews who tried to respond to the Jewish question by simply opting out completely, giving up their Jewish identity entirely, either by simply converting to Christianity or assimilating into the secular society and attempting to cut all ties with the Jewish people, with Jewish heritage, or adopting some new ideology, some radical ideology like socialism or communism. We talked about those who tried to maintain some semblance of Jewish identity, but redefining it in such a way that would fit in their mind with um, with the, the new modern world. We talked about Reform Judaism and how in its early days it it uh, very much attempted to completely deny and reject any notion that there's a national component to the Jewish people or to Am Yisrael. The idea to try to redefine 
Jewishness as simply being a religion and to define Jews as members of whatever nation they live among, be they Americans, be they Germans, be they French, or whatever else, uh, and simply to define Jewishness as a religion similar to the way Catholicism and Protestantism and Islam are religions. We talked about two great gedolim of the 19th century who also grappled with this question and came to what might be seen as opposite uh, solutions. The Khatam Sofer, who saw the dangers uh, in emancipation, the dangers in raising these questions, and preferred to try to go back to the way things had always been done, so to speak, to voluntarily return to the ghetto, and we described him as what might be called the founder of modern Haredi Judaism, and on a certain level, and we mentioned his famous phrase, Hechadash Asur Minat Torah, and we talked about Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch, who had a very different idea, which he called Torah in Derech Eretz and Rav Hirsch's attempt, and we read a keta, uh, a short passage from one of Rav Hirsch's writings in which he attempted to sort of square the circle and to say that, uh, so to speak, Adaraba, to the contrary, the very phenomenon, the very unusual phenomenon of Jewishness, which made Am Yisrael so suspicious, that itself he believed could be the source of the solution and one could be fully German or French, American, or anything else, and still fully a member of Am Yisrael, precisely because Am Yisrael is not a nation in the classic sense of the term. We talked about these different possibilities, and um, there's no question that to this very day, there are Jews who continue to maintain every single one of those positions. But I think it's undeniable um, that none of these has solved the Jewish problem or provided a real answer to the Jewish question. We saw that already... 70 or so years ago, uh, during the terrible Holocaust, when Jews of every single persuasion, including those who adhered to every single one of these ideologies, met their deaths together in places like Auschwitz. So anti-Semitism certainly hasn't been eradicated, and the Jewish problem certainly hasn't been solved. And the question then still remains, what exactly is this all about? Why is this all happening to us? What are we, after all? And what is the secret of Am Levadad Yishko? The answer to that question, in its fullest sense, is something we're going to begin to discuss in next week's podcast. But first I want to discuss one other movement that arose in the 19th century, and that on the one hand can also be looked upon as an attempt to respond to this question, the Jewish question or the Jewish problem that everyone was grappling with then, but I think it deserves a discussion of its own, um, because I think it's, it's completely different than all the others in some ways. Uh, the idea I'm talking about is an idea that became known by the term Zionism, Sionut. And this was an idea that was simultaneously very, very new and also very, very old. Zionism, of course, is the movement that, or the collection of movements, because it was really more than one and remains more than one ideology, but a collection of, of different philosophies, all of which uh, shared the goal of organizing mass aliyah of bringing Jews from wherever they were living all over the world back to Eretz Yisrael, to reclaiming our ancient homeland and to reestablishing ourselves as a normal nation with a country of its own, with a land of its own, with a government and an army of its own, and with a language of its own and a culture of its own. I say this is what was both a new idea and an old one. Old, because as we already pointed out, in uh, in the very first podcast, the idea of kibbutz galuyot, the idea that one day Am Yisrael will return to Eretz Yisrael and will re-inherit and re-establish itself in its ancient homeland, that idea is as old as the Torah itself. We read from the book of Dvarim, where this 
is predicted with incredible accuracy, exactly the way things ultimately happened or are continuing to happen, we saw, uh, is the way it's described in Devarim and also in, in other passages in the Nevi'im, particularly in Yeshayahu and also in other places. So the idea of kibbutz galuyot, the idea of returning to Eretz Yisrael is certainly not a new idea. Every single Jew who had recited the tefillot of, uh, of every, uh, every day re- repeatedly asked, Every Jew always said, He spoke about rebuilding Yerushalayim in every single Shemona Esrei. Uh, and every single Birkat Mazon, Uvene Yerushalayim, Mirakodish Bim Hiravi Amenu, and, uh, every, uh, Tfilat Musaf, even more explicitly, Vetalinu Bitsimchali Artsenu Vetitainu Bigvulenu. So these ideas were things which, and, and ending every Pesach Seder and every Tfilah of Yom Kippur with the slogan, the Shana Habaabi Yerushalayim Habuya, these are all Ideas that are built into the fabric of Jewish life throughout all the generations. And we mentioned that Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai already put some of this in, created some of these Zechel and Mikdash policies and various practices that led to this type of thinking. So it's certainly not a new idea. But on the other hand, it was extremely new. Because while for centuries uh, Jews had hoped and dreamed and prayed of returning to Eretz Israel, with very few exceptions, Nobody actually tried to do anything practical about it. And various different individuals and later groups over the course of the 19th century began to take practical steps uh, to change this reality and to make the idea of Shivat Zion, of Kibbutz Galuyot, not just a dream, not just something that we prayed for and waited for, but something that we actually worked towards in a very practical way. Um, it began also with talk, but with talk of doing something practical and not simply, um, and not simply, uh, waiting and praying. And perhaps the first one, uh, to raise this in a very practical way was a rabbi from Yugoslavia at the time, Bosnia, by the name of Rabbi Yehuda Alkali, who already in 1840 wrote a sefer called Minchat Yehuda, or, or in 1840 there was a terrible blood libel in the city of Damascus, and the Jews of, of that city were were accused of uh, of murdering a non-Jewish person, and and uh, and as a result, falsely accused, and as a result, there was a massacre of the Jews in the city of Damascus. And uh, partially in response to that, he wrote this sefer, and I'll I'll just read you a few lines. From what he wrote there, it's a sefer of machshava. It's a sefer of philosophy uh, and of drush, in which he redefines the classic concept of tshuva. Um, and he tells us, and he tells us that um, I'll read here a few lines here. Ki yadua umuskamhu she'ein hadavar talui ele b'tshuva. Rav Alkali says the conclusion of the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin is that the geula, the redemption, will only come through tshuva, through a word that we normally define as repentance. But, of course, the word tshuva in its more literal sense means return. A norm that was understood as returning to God by um, by correcting our ways and by and by uh, more scrupulously observing the mitzvot. And uh, he writes, V'chol gidrei ha-tshuva asher gavlu rishonim. He talks about different approaches to tshuva 
All of which essentially looked at tshuva as something that each individual person has to do. Each one of us has to examine our ways and correct our errors and, uh, and, and improve our, ourselves and our actions and our relationship with God and our fulfillment of mitzvot. And the sum total of that, if each individual does it, is that the, is that the Jewish people as a whole will do tshuva, and then Hashem, when He is satisfied with our tshuva, will bring us back to Eretz Yisrael. That's the way, and bring the Mashiach, that's the way it had always been understood. And He says, all of these different approaches, kvodan bimkoma munach, it's, it's, uh, you know, they're all legitimate, lichuva pratit, when we're dealing with the tshuva of the individual. But there's also a tshuva, a return of the entire nation. And that's the one that the geulah, that the redemption is ultimately dependent upon. And that is, When we accept upon ourselves this fundamental mitzvah, To return to the, to the um, environs of the Beit HaMikdash, and to begin to um, to um, to talk about and to actually return to Eretz Yisrael. And he was one of the first to talk about, in a very practical way, the idea that returning to Eretz Yisrael is what's going to bring the Gula. And he, a few uh, decades later, another great rabbi, this one Ashkenazi, Rabbi, rabbi Yatzvi Hirsch Kalisher, in 1862, wrote a uh, very important sefer called Jvishat Zion. And that sefer also included a halachic section, uh, in which he, uh, and as well as a uh, philosophical one, in which he said an idea that was essentially similar to Rav Alkali, the idea that Mashiach is only going to come when we take it upon ourselves to return to Eretz Yisrael. He wanted to go a step further and even begin bringing korbanot on the Harabayit, something which he felt was halachically permissible, even though most of the other gedolim of the time disagreed with him and he can uh, carried on a correspondence with a number of the great rabbanim of his generation, arguing the halachic basis for for this idea. But in any case, I'll read you a, a, a short section from his book as well, from the book Drishat Zion. He writes, Geulat Yisrael, asher anachnu la, the redemption which we are awaiting, al yachshov achoshev, ki pitom yered Hashem yibarach shemom yishamayim eretz. Don't think God is going to suddenly come down from the heavens, lemor la'amod tzu'u, and tell us, Tell his people it's time to go. Oh, Yishlach Mishicho Keregem in Hashemayim, or send the Mashiach down instantly, uh, miraculously from heaven, Litkar B'Shofar Gadol on Litchei Yisrael B'Yikabseim Yerushalayim, to blow the great Shofar and bring us all to Yerushalayim. V'yaselo Chamat Eishu Mikdash El Mimromim Tereb, and don't assume that everything's going to happen miraculously with a wall of fire and the Mikdash coming down completely built from Shemayim. Lokein Korea Maskil. That's not the way it's going to happen said Rev Kalisher. And he then proceeded to outline an idea that at the time was revolutionary. Certainly everything that the Nevi'im tell us, all the prophecies are going to ultimately be fulfilled. Not one thing will remain unfulfilled. But, Don't think it's going to happen spontaneously and in an instant. It's going to happen very, very slowly in a, in a, um, uh, in a very natural sort of way. And I'll skip a little bit and just read a, a little bit more. He talks about how we have to 
work together to organize and begin to figure out how to raise the money necessary and uh, organize ourselves so that we can begin the process of bringing ourselves back and resettling Eretz Yisrael. And he also, as I mentioned, wanted to begin to rebuild the Mizbeach and to begin to bring Korbanot. And he goes on to talk about how also after the Mabul, Noach brought a Korban. And that is what brought about the promise not to destroy the world. That's something we'll talk about uh, either in next week's podcast or the following one. Bezrat Hashem. And he says something similar is going to happen uh, here as well. Kasher nafik ritzon me'ashem al yidei korban reach nichoach v'nechaper lano kolavonotenu az yashu v'nichem Hashem l'savev lano gula shlema gulat olam simchat netzach sela. He says, after we, we, uh, bring ourselves back to Israel, gather in the exiles, bring a korban to atone for ourselves, then, uh, all of the nevuot will take place, the nevuot of Yechezkel, Milchemet, Gogo, Magog, etc., and ultimately, um, the full redemption will come. So these were rabbinic voices talking about the idea that it's time to not just daven, not just pray, uh, and not just hope, but actually do something, do something practical. Um, meanwhile, in Yerushalayim, in the year 1878, a group of Jews, uh, led by the famous Rabbi Yoel Moshe Solomon, decided that they were going to take matters into their own hands as well, and no longer confine themselves to the walls of the city of Yerushalayim, but leave the city um, and, and uh, go out and try to build the, the land. And they bought a tiny piece of land near the Arkon River, and they eventually created there in the year 1878 the beginnings of what became known first as the small colony, and later today as the major city of Petach Tikva. In the very same year, a group of Jews from Tzfat went down and founded a small Moshava, a small colony called Ge'oni, which was later renamed Rosh Pina. And this is the beginning of, of uh, Jews in Eretz Yisrael deciding to change the, the terms of their existence and instead of simply living in the cities in which they were cramped at the time and being supported primarily by donations from abroad and living under the rule of, of the non-Jews at whose mercy they were, to begin to take practical steps to redeem the land, to drain the swamps and to build the country again. Um, in 1881, there was a terrible wave of massacres against the Jews of Russia. A lot of Jews were killed, particularly in southern Russia. The Jews called this the Sufot Banegev, the terrible storms in the south, during which many, many Jews were massacred, and there were tens of thousands of Jewish refugees that needed a place to go. Many of these Jews ultimately immigrated to the United States, and 1880 is the year in which massive immigration from Eastern Europe to the United States began to take place. This is really the beginnings of the large numbers of American Jewry. There were some Jews in America before that, but the large numbers came uh, between the years of 1880 and 1914 or so. Um, and at the same time, there were those who began to say, wait, 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 if we have to uh, have all this type of, this type of immigration, um, then why are we sending them off to America? This is the opportunity to begin to build Eretz Yisrael. And among these was a great Rav in Europe at the time, Rav Shmuel Moliver, uh, one of the great Gedolim of that time, who founded an organization that became known as Chobavet Sion, uh, ultimately met with Baron Rothschild, 
um, the great baron who, who donated tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions actually, in today's terminology, to building uh, the land of Israel. And he, together with the support of other rabbinim at the time, like the Nitziv, began uh, to back the efforts to organize what became known as the first Aliyah, and the beginnings of Jews settling in, uh, in Eretz Yisrael. Um, so this is all coming from the traditional perspective uh, and looking at the reality of the time in which they were living and the fact that anti-Semitism had not been solved, uh, whether it was what happened in Damascus in 1840 or what happened in Russia in 1880, and coming to the conclusion that the time has come to, to begin to try to bring about through our own actions the fulfillment of the Nebuot and the idea that this is what is going to ultimately bring the redemption of the Jewish people. It wasn't only religious Jews who came to this conclusion. In 1896, a man named Theodor Herzl wrote a very famous book, a short little pamphlet actually, a very small book in German called Der Judenstaat, The Jewish State. What prompted Herzl to write this book, Herzl was a, was a newspaper reporter, uh, had grown up in Austria to a completely assimilated Jewish family, um, almost no connection with his Jewish heritage. And he very much believed in the idea of the emancipation um, somewhere along the spectrum of Reform Judaism or or Assimilationism, something in between. He wasn't even a Reform Jew. He wasn't really particularly identified with Jewish heritage. But he was very, very concerned with the Jewish people, at least with individual Jews and the Jews who were suffering uh, because of anti-Semitism. Um, as a reporter, he wrote a number of articles in his early years, in which he advocated for some sort of assimilation, some sort of, even at one point suggesting that all the Jews should just convert to Christianity, uh, and that this, he felt, would solve the problem, embrace emancipation, become completely active and loyal members of the countries in which we live, Germany, France, or wherever it is, become part of the new Europe, and, uh, and our problems will be solved. This was Herzl's idea in his youth, but his... Ideas were changed uh, completely and permanently by an event he witnessed in 1895 or so uh, in Paris. Herzl, who wrote for an Austrian newspaper as a reporter, was stationed at the time in Paris as their correspondent. And at the time, a man named Alfred Dreyfus was put on trial. Alfred Dreyfus was an assimilated Jew, a person who had no real connections with his Jewish heritage or the Jewish community. Um, and in fact, he was a captain in the French army. He had risked his life for France on the battlefield and had been decorated for bravery, a num- uh, had won a number of medals for bravery and for his service to the French army. And he was rising through the ranks of the French army and had reached a fairly high rank. And apparently, there were those who were upset about the fact that a Jew was reaching uh, a position of prominence in the army, and they decided to do something about it. Dreyfus was falsely accused of treason. They claimed that he was disloyal to France. There was absolutely no evidence to back up the claim, and the trial was very clearly, very clearly a, a, a false trial in which, in which a show trial in which he was framed and convicted without any real evidence, and he was stripped of his rank and humiliated and sentenced to life in prison uh, for a crime that he did not commit. His only crime was that he was a Jew. Ultimately, many years later, um, due to pressure from Jews in other countries, there was a retrial and he was eventually exonerated. But in the meantime, Herzl was sitting there and watching this entire thing, writing daily updates on the Dreyfus trial. And realizing that Alfred Dreyfus was the epitome 
of what he believed Jews should do in order to solve the problem, the Jewish problem or the Jewish question. Here was a person who completely or almost completely abandoned any association with the Jewish people as a separate entity and devoted his entire life to his country. How more, how more devoted can you be than to serve your country as a soldier on the battlefield? He was French in every, every single way and it didn't matter. He was destroyed simply because he was a Jew. And that had a profound impact on Herzl and caused Herzl to completely revise his thinking. And at, shortly after this trial, as I said, he wrote this book, Der Judenstadt, in which he suggested a different approach. And let me read you a short section from that book. He writes, The Jewish question still exists. It would be foolish to deny it. It is indeed a remnant of the Middle Ages, which civilized nations do not even yet seem able to shake off, try as they will. They certainly showed a generous desire to do so when they emancipated us. And yet the Jewish question exists wherever Jews live in perceptible numbers. Where it does not exist, it is carried by Jews in the course of their migrations. We naturally move to those places where we are not persecuted, and there our presence produces persecution. And he's coming to the conclusion that it's just not going to work. Nothing we do in Europe or in any place else in the world, wherever we move and whatever we try to do, it simply doesn't work. Anti-Semitism always returns. And he continues and writes, I believe that I understand anti-Semitism, which is really a highly complex movement. I consider it from a Jewish standpoint, yet without fear or hatred. I believe that I can see what elements there are in it of vulgar sport, of common trade jealousy, of inherited prejudice, of religious intolerance, and also of pretended self-defense. But he says none of these is really the source of anti-Semitism. I think the Jewish question is no more a social than a religious one notwithstanding that it sometimes takes these and other forms, it is a national, national question, which can only be solved by making it a political world question to be discussed and settled by the civilized nations of the world in council. We are a people, said Theodor Herzl, one people. We are a people. We have honestly endeavored everywhere to merge ourselves in the social life of surrounding communities and to preserve only the faith of our fathers, and yet we are not permitted to do so. In vain are we loyal patriots. If only we could be left in peace. But I think we shall not be left in peace. And Herzl goes on to detail a fairly detailed plan, a plan that in retrospect was highly, highly unrealistic, but a plan to organize all the Jews in the world into one political body and to raise money from all the Jews in the world to lobby the Ottoman Empire, which at that time had controlled the land of Israel for over 300 years, over 350 years by then, and to um, purchase land and move all the Jews to Eretz Israel. He believed that doing so, and if you read this book, you'll see, he, he wrote, he believed that this could be done fairly painlessly, fairly effortlessly. Um, all the nations of the world, he felt, including the Ottomans, would readily agree. Anti-Semitism would immediately cease. Not only once Jews had actually moved to the country and built up a land of their own, but even by merely expressing the desire to do so. And it wouldn't cost anybody any money. He had this whole economic scheme that he thought would work. And uh, the Jewish state that would be built would become a member of the family of nations 
a light to all the nations, a nation that others would, would look up to and admire, no longer would there be hatred of Jews as being some sort of, uh, or suspicion of Jews as being some sort of unusual entity. Once we had a land and a nation of our own, we would be people like all others. We would no longer be different, and there would be nothing to be suspicious of. Even if a few Jews remained in, in other countries, that would be fine, because they would be viewed upon, they would be viewed simply as, as, uh, members of the nation of, of, of Israel that was living in another country, just like you could have a foreigner from any country living in another country, he believed that anti-Semitism would immediately cease. And that this would solve the Jewish problem once and for all. This book that he wrote, Der Judenstadt, got a lot of attention. And just one year later, he called a conference in Basel, Switzerland, called the First Zionist Congress in 1897, in which an organization called the World Zionist Organization was founded, and the plan to begin working towards a Jewish state was put into action. He wrote in his diary, coming home from that conference, I believe that today I founded the Jewish state. I do not know if it will take five years or 50 years, but there will be a Jewish state. And that prediction was uncannily accurate. He wrote that in 1896, it actually took 51 years until 1948. I'm sorry, he wrote that in 1897. It actually took 51 years until 1948 for a Jewish state to be declared. Of course, it didn't happen quite exactly the way Herzl thought it would. It wasn't exactly embraced by all the nations of the world. It took two world wars and a holocaust uh, before uh, before the Jewish state was actually declared. And um, it's hard to say that the Jewish state uh, solved the Jewish question. On the one hand, there's no question that all these individuals, from the Rabbanim, from Rav Alkali and Rav Kalisher, through Rav Moliver and the Nitziv and others who supported this movement, and later on, of course, Rav Kook and, and all the other Rabbanim who supported the idea of Jews coming to settle in the land, from those religious and non-religious alike who worked toward this, towards this goal, be it the, uh, the pioneers of the first Taliyah and those who sent them from Chomavet Zion and Baron Rothschild who supported the whole thing to those who came later on in the second and third Aliyot and the World Zionist Organization and all the other movements that later were created and led to this goal. There's no question that all these people working together um, helped, cre- helped create something that today is the viable and incredibly miraculous state of Israel. So it certainly must be said that Zionism was a success in the sense that it's Its uh, vision was realized and continues to be realized. But, did it solve the Jewish problem? Absolutely not. Did it end anti-Semitism? No way. We know very well that anti-Semitism is still very much a phenomenon. And indeed, not only has the Jewish state not ended anti-Semitism like Herzl thought it would, but the Jewish state today is the primary target, and some might even say cause, of anti-Semitism. It's not the cause because when there was no Jewish state, there was also anti-Semitism, but today, most anti-Semitic, um, or at least many anti-Semitic um, sentiments are expressed as reactions to things done by the State of Israel. So this brings us back to where we started from. No matter what we seem to do, nothing solves the Jewish problem. We have survived and to continue to survive, and continue to follow the path that the Torah set out for us in history, and yet, it's Difficult to understand how or why we've managed to do so, and more importantly, how or why we seem to constantly suffer the uh, the negative reactions that we get. Starting in next week's podcast, we'll look at the Torah from the very beginning. We'll start with the Pasuk of Bereshit Bara Elokim, 
and try to see how the Torah itself addresses all of these issues. And if we look at the Torah from a slightly different perspective than what perhaps we're used to, all of this will become clear. It'll become clear to us how and why this all came to be, and even more importantly, what it all means. That's what we'll do in the coming weeks, beginning with Rat Hashem in next week's podcast. Shalom.